All right. Amen. Man, who's glad they came to church this morning, huh? Praise God. You know, when we, the Bible calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and when we do, it's like, it wor- it's, like it's true, right? Like, it works, you know? We come together, we fix our eyes on Jesus, we kind of let everything fall by the wayside, we set him in his rightful place where he belongs, and we come into alignment uh, with the kingdom of God on the earth, you know? And it's powerful. It's so good to be together this morning. My name is Chris Pletcher. I am the family's pastor here at Antioch. I love being a part of this church family. Love it, love it, love it. My wife and I, we've been here at Antioch for about six and a half years or so. Been on staff for about two and a half years running with our amazing families. Guys, we have some of the coolest families in the city. Oh, there's my family. There we go. So um, if you haven't met my kids yet, you're missing out. They're so cute. They're all like Gerber babies and... Um, we are, we're blessed. That's my oldest in the middle, Caleb. We have identical twins on either side. Um, that's Hudson on the left and Levi on the right. They're miracle babies. And uh, Holland Rose, she's a little bit bigger than that now. She's a lot chunkier than that now, actually. Um, but we love doing family here with this church family. Being a part of this community has really just transformed the way that we live our lives, uh, the way our marriage, the way that we parent, just the day-to-day of raising a family and walking with Jesus, and um, we just love getting to be a part of the family of God. So I'm so excited to continue our series in Romans. Uh, Have you guys been enjoying this little walk through Romans so far? Man, the gospel of power is kind of what we've titled this series, and um, you know, it's such a powerful book. The book of Romans, it, it, it is an amazing work of literature, and our heart is really just to dive in deeper and deeper each week and walk away with just such richness in the Word of God, especially in our understanding and our love and appreciation for the gospel, the good news, the gospel of power. And so as always, we're going to recap it just a little bit here. It'll be brief on the front end, but we really want to see the way this book is unfolding because it's so powerful. And actually, for us to be able to fully and powerfully receive each subsequent message or chapter that Paul is writing, we kind of have to see how it unfolds in the whole uh, train of thought. Are you with me? So Paul spends the first two and a half chapters of the book book of Romans convincing all of us that we are inherently unrighteous, right? How many of you are like, yeah, I understand that. I think we've covered that point pretty good, right? So, okay. So we're inherently unrighteous. That actually, before we get born again in Jesus, that we love sin so much We love our sin so much that we actually will suppress the truth of God that we know is true. We will suppress it and try to explain him off of his judgment seat. We exchange his glory for a lie, and we end up in a huge mess, right? Humanity spirals into deep darkness where we actually start approving of each other's sin and evil, right? And we just eat the rotten fruit of our own choices, None of us are righteous by birthright. None of us. All of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? We've just fallen short of the created purpose of our lives and what he made us to be and do. And because God has made his glory so obvious throughout all of creation, we're all without excuse. We're all without excuse, rightfully deserving the justice of God. Justice is good, right? Right. We rightfully deserve the justice of God which means judgment for our sin and judgment for our dishonor and disdain for him. 
And so that leaves us with a very important and eternal question. Is there any hope? Is there any answer for our deep unrighteousness? Say it with me, church. Yes! His name is Jesus, and it's the gospel of power. The gospel of power is the hope for our deep unrighteousness, right? That we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How are we going to become righteous? It has to be revealed. We can't get there in our own, right? So Jesus comes and he embodies the righteousness of God from faith for faith so that the righteous can live by faith. Jesus takes on flesh and blood, becomes a perfectly righteous man, lays aside all of his divinity, you understand? Lays aside all of his godness, becomes a perfectly righteous man, offers up his life as an innocent offering for the sin of humanity, making possible the greatest exchange in all of history. My sin for his righteousness. We become recipients of the free gift of the righteousness of God by faith, and he fundamentally alters my identity at the foot of the cross. He resurrects me to newness of life on the other side of the empty tomb. Born again, new creation, saint, no longer defined by my sin and my shortcomings and my failure, but defined by his righteousness, the child of God. And last week, Tyler walked us through chapter six, and he did an incredibly powerful job showing us that the normal Christian life now, on the other side of the empty tomb in Jesus, the normal Christian life is a life of freedom from sin. This was an answer to a question that Paul posed two different times in chapter 6. He poses this question, well, since we're saved now by grace through faith, Jesus is our righteousness. Well, should we just continue in sin? I mean, he's my righteousness. Is it okay if I just kind of keep dabbling a little bit? And he says, no way. No, the death and resurrection of Jesus paved the way for me to actually be resurrected to newness of life, a newness of life. Freedom from sin is the normal Christian life. I want you to say it with me. Freedom from sin is the normal Christian life. Struggling continually with the same sin patterns, dominated and discouraged by your old habits, it's not the normal Christian life. It's not the gospel of power. It's not what the blood of Jesus paid for when he spilled all of it out on the cross and then kicked through the tomb. It's not the normal Christian life. So as we dive into chapter 7 today, Paul will answer for us a huge question then as pertains to this freedom. If freedom is the normal Christian life, how do we practically attain to it? How do we get there? This is part one of a two-chapter answer, seven and eight, two-chapter answer to this question. If we know Jesus has purchased freedom for sin, how do we get there? And as we turn to Romans chapter seven this morning, we're going to dive in and try to answer this question. How do we walk free? How do we actually walk free? How do we get there? So I got to throw a little disclaimer out there for you guys. I'm calling this Sunday Fire Hose Sunday, okay? Okay. 
because you're about to get blasted by the word of God, okay? So I hope that you're hungry, thirsty, attentive, ready to go. And it's so, we're going to cover so much, it's so good, you can't really take anything out because it all builds upon itself. And so we're going to try something new, and we're going to actually stop a couple of different points along the way in the message and respond, and then keep going, and stop, and respond, and then keep going. So we're going to respond three different times today, all right? To hopefully get us a little deeper in there, okay? So here we go, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Say that with me, church. Belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So how do we walk free? How do we walk free, guys? How do we practically attain to this freedom that Jesus purchased? He knows that these are mostly Jewish background believers. They've lived under a large system of rules their whole life. And so they're going to think, well, okay, how do we walk free? Let's bring all the rules back in. Let's live by the law. Church, is that the way that freedom in Christ, let's just have a really great rule book? Let's just have a new law, a new set of commandments? Is that how we attain to freedom? And he's saying here in chapter 7, no. Because see, when Jesus died, you actually died with him. And you died to the law. The law was binding on you legally, just like a marriage contract would be. But when, if the husband dies, that's the illustration he gives, if the husband dies, you're actually free from that marriage legally, and you can go and remarry, and you're clean and clear. And so we died to the law so that we could marry again. Marry who? Jesus. Now, I know some of you might be a little, girls, you're probably like, oh, that sounds so great. Dudes, you might be a little squeamish. Oh, marry Jesus? What? Like, I don't know about all that, but let me explain. Okay, we've died with Christ to the law, to marry Jesus. The other way he says it, we've been released from the law to serve in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, uh, 6, 17, there we go, says this, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So when you place your faith in Jesus and the spirit of God comes and takes residence in your life, you become one spirit with God. You actually marry Jesus. Okay, so Why does this matter? Because do you know that the normal product of healthy marriage is fruitfulness? You just saw my four kids, right? Okay. The normal product of healthy marriage is fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Okay. So this is so important because the key to fruitfulness, the key to freedom and fruitfulness, it is not more rules. It is marriage. Are you with me? 
Okay, let me bring it all the way there. Some of us are still trying to apply lots of rules to our lives, thinking that it's going to make us more holy, thinking that it's going to make us love God more. But the rules cannot change you and make you more holy and more like Jesus. You know what can change you? Being married to Jesus. Why? Because marriage changes you. Married couples. Yep. Right? You ever seen like the 65, 70, 70 year old couples dancing together at the wedding? They've been married 50 years and they like look the same. They're like, they've been married for 50 years. You know what I'm talking about? They're like, look the same. And you're like, how did that happen? You know, are you guys brother and sister or something? Like y'all are, but they're not. They've just been together for so long. Marriage like changes you and you become, you become like your spouse. So what can marriage teach us? about fruitfulness. Well, number one, we become like the one we spend the most time with, right? That's why we talk about spending so much time with Jesus, okay? We don't want you to be married to a rule book. We want you to be married to Jesus and spend time with him because you'll become more and more like the one you spend time with. When I got married to my amazing wife, Arlena, nine years ago, I was not the most peaceful person in the world. She was, And guys, being married to her for nine years, it has like changed me. I am so much more of a peaceful person now than I was nine years ago. She has shaped me and changed me because I've spent a lot of time with her. Secondly, marriage, being in a marriage covenant, you choose to love your spouse regardless of the ebbs and flows of feelings. That's like our relationship with Jesus. We're in covenant. We choose to love and follow Jesus regardless of the ebb and flow. But lastly, what can marriage teach us about fruitfulness and freedom? In a healthy marriage, you're already fully accepted by your spouse. Day one, they stood at the altar, they made vows, they accepted you fully day one. You don't have to earn their acceptance and approval. That's not a healthy marriage if you're having to continually prove yourself to your spouse, right? Okay, so here's the cool thing. The safety of being in this covenant, knowing that they're never going to leave me, creates this incredible environment for transformation. Here's why. Because you're already accepted for all your quirks, but you get just enough feedback for all your weaknesses too. Are you with me? Married folks, you know what I'm talking about? And so that process actually transforms you and helps you become who God has created you to be. Because you learn to actually love and accept yourself in that process because you're being accepted, accepted by somebody else. But then, am I cutting in and out here? Okay, we might need a new battery. If they're, they're, they might come down and change this out. We'll, we'll be good. But you learn how to accept yourself. But at the same time, marriage, you're, it's like looking in a mirror. You're getting plenty of feedback on how you're falling short too. And so you actually have to grow and change and become more like Jesus. Marriage. How do I walk three? How do I walk free? relationship, not rules. Say that with me. Relationship, not rules. Okay, so we are at the moment of response number one here. We're going to take 60 seconds, and we're all going to just ask the Lord in our own heart. You can write it in your journal. Jesus, am I married? Who, who am I married to? Who am I married to? That's what I want you to write in your journal. We're going to take 60 seconds. I just want you to ask God, just like you're praying. God, who am I married to? Am I married to rules or am I married to Jesus?
And when we ask God a question, we're not listening for some like audible booming response. You guys, if, have, if you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So I would just ask the question and whatever answer kind of first rises to your mind, just say, okay, God, I receive that and press into it. Let's take 60 seconds. We're going to ask the Lord, who am I married to? Right, amen. So Jesus has died, literally has died on the cross so that we could be free from a marriage to the rule book, guys, so that we could walk in relationship with him. And so if the Lord just spoke to you and if you feel like he said, hey, actually, you're still married to the law, you're still married to the rules, you get to get a divorce today, okay? Because the rule book stinks, guys. It stinks because, actually, we're going to see here in a second, the rule book's actually amazing but it cannot change you. It cannot change you. Only being married to Jesus can change you. So does this mean that we just toss out the law? We just toss out the rule book? Just reject all the rules? I'm free. I'm married to Jesus. No, we're going to pick it up here in verse 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment, focus in on this here, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So no, we don't just toss out the law and the commandments. The law is holy and righteous and good. Jesus himself said that not one dot or letter of the law is going to be abolished by God. The commandments of God actually Promise life. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life. Guys, the commandments of God actually promise life. And they actually led to life and blessing in the Old Testament for those that could actually follow them. I mean, the nation of Israel had amazing seasons of prosperity and blessing because they obeyed the law and the commandments of God, right? But our hearts are so deceitful and sick without Jesus that we could never sustain life by the law. You can kind of get some blank stares. Okay, Jeremiah 17.9, check this out. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So who can understand it? 
You see, the greatest rule book, guys, that's kind of what they had, right? I mean, the nation of Israel, they had like 600-something laws. The greatest rule book in all of history cannot change your sick heart. So what does a good doctor do with somebody whose heart is incurably sick? What do they recommend? A new one. We got to get this guy a heart transplant. There's no hope for this guy's heart. We got to get it out of here and put a new one in or else this guy's going to die. You know, we can, we can all day long surround him with great health methods of how he should live his life and what, try to extend his days, but this guy's heart is incurably sick. There's no hope. We got to get it out of him. Wow. I wonder where we're going to find a heart donor for this guy. I wonder where. Has there ever been a man whose heart wasn't sick? Has there ever been a man who actually wanted to love and obey and honor God and everything? Where can we find a donor? Jesus came as a man and perfectly followed and loved and obeyed God so that a heart could be put on the table and say, I found one for all these sick guys. It's Jesus' heart. And then wouldn't you know, guys, the culmination of all of biblical history is the new covenant, right? Where God himself says that I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is Ezekiel 36. Let's go to verse 26 here. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Excuse me. Who back up one, please? I will remove the heart of stone for your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey. We, we are not called to try to clean up and improve our old sick heart. We need a heart transplant. And this is the crux of the gospel of power. This is the new covenant. This is the, the center of Christianity, is that your Jeremiah 17 desperately sick heart can actually be taken out. It kind of drives me nuts because I hear people quote that verse sometimes talking like it's still true now for a believer. I don't believe it's still true that my heart is desperately sick, guys. That's not the gospel of power. The gospel of power says that in the new covenant, the heart of Jesus was transplanted. My sick old heart died with him on the cross. And so some of us today, coming to response number two here, some of us today may still be trying to clean up our old sick heart. It's hopeless. You need a heart transplant. And so I just want to invite everyone to close your eyes. Close your eyes for response number two. If you know that is you, and you've never asked Jesus to take out your sick, deceitful, old heart, and to give you his heart, receive the free gift of the new covenant, I want to just invite you today in the quietness of your heart with God, to just say, Jesus, you can pray it with me. I know my heart is desperately sick without you. Would you come in, Jesus? I can't clean this thing up on my own. Would you come and remove my heart of stone and put your heart within me? I receive the gift of the new covenant that you paid for with your blood. I receive the new heart through your death on the cross and your resurrection. Jesus' name. Every eye closed. 
If you just prayed that prayer, this is a huge day for you, and I want you to stamp it for yourself just by every eye closing your I just want you to raise your hand and say, yep, I took that exchange today. Just be bold on the count of three. Raise your hand. I just took that exchange today. I need a new heart. Praise God. Praise God. Guys, at least six, eight, ten hands around the room getting a new heart from Jesus. That's the gospel of power. It's the gospel of power. So if you raise your hand, guys, I want you to connect with somebody today and tell someone, say, yes, I've been trying to clean up my old heart. I didn't know that Jesus actually came to give me a new one. Guys, are we preaching that gospel? For those of us that love Jesus, walk with Jesus, are we preaching that gospel? Or are we, telling, are we still telling people, hey, just invite Jesus into your heart. Hey, I love it. It's, it's a good line. But if I'm communicating to people that they need to invite Jesus in to do spring cleaning in their sick heart, that's not the gospel, guys. That's not the gospel. All right. So we've been saved by grace, given a new heart through the new covenant. Okay, sin, though, as we all know, doesn't just vanish and go away, right? How many of you got a new heart and it's like, oh, haven't, haven't sinned since? Probably no one, right? So the penalty of sin has vanished. Praise God. The penalty of sin has vanished. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin is still an obvious reality for us as believers. So what do we make of our sin? What do we make? How do we think rightly about our sin? Tyler did such a good job last week explaining sanctification, which is this lifelong process, he said, of growing in the practical holiness of Jesus. We're growing. It's a process. We're in process, guys. But make no mistake, you have the hardware now through the new covenant to actually become like Jesus. You have it in you now as a believer. So how do we think rightly about sin as we seek to walk in freedom? We're going to keep going here in verse 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Who has a headache from all of this? The guy sounds psychotic, okay? He's like having this mental b battle going on, okay? And God, he says here three different times in this little section at the end of seven, three different times, sin dwells in me. Sin dwells in me. Sin dwells in me. And I've heard people use this snippet of five, six verses to actually defend why they're still struggling with sin. Have you ever heard this before? Maybe you've done it yourself. I did this. I remember in college confessing to my accountability group that I'd looked at pornography yet again, but that I had read Romans 7. I was so encouraged because I realized it wasn't me doing it. It was sin dwelling in me. 
I had to repent for that this week as I prepared for this message. Because, guys, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Is this still true for a born-again believer? Before Jesus, this was definitely true, right? If we consider, though, everything that the New Testament claims about the gospel of power and what happens to us at salvation, I have a really hard time believing that he's describing a born-again believer when he says that. Are you with me, guys? I haven't lost you? Okay. We all know that we were born into sin and rebellion, right? We know that. We were completely bent towards selfishness and rebellion before Jesus entered the picture. The theologians call this total depravity, right? And we talk about our sin nature, our sin nature. And very smart, much smarter than me, hear me say that honestly and humbly, very smart, Jesus-loving theologians will tell you, based on this passage, that nothing happened to your sin nature when you got saved. Nothing happened to your sin nature. You were forgiven, you were redeemed, you were sealed even with the Spirit. The power of sin was broken, but your sin nature remained intact, meaning that you still fundamentally want to sin more than anything else. Is that true? Only got a few no's on this. How many of you are like, I don't know, Chris, are you setting me up to knock me down here? This passage is hard. Who wants to switch spots with me right now and get up here and preach Romans 7? Is this still true that my sin nature is still intact and more than anything else, I fundamentally want to sin? I don't believe so, guys. I've wrestled with it a lot this week. I really have. But I have to say that I think that that way of thinking is a gross underestimation of everything that Jesus paid for on the cross and bought for us when he resurrected from the grave. That doesn't sound like a gospel of power to me. The New Testament says that in Christ I'm born again. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. He says I'm a saint now and that I actually have a new heart within me. And just so you know, I'm not the only heretic. If you think I am one, I was listening to this sermon on the way home from driving to Houston last night, and Bill Johnson, who another much smarter, godlier man than myself, he says this, the blood of Jesus dealt completely and thoroughly, not only with the record of sin, but with the root system of sin. It's broken. And I was like, thank you, God, for confirmation. I'm not going out on a limb here by myself. The root system of sin is broken. And even here at the end of of chapter 7, Paul states that Jesus delivers us from this kind of schizophrenic warfare that's happening here. He says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, again, that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been delivered. The answer's there. See, guys, the book doesn't end right here in Romans 7. 
Remember I told you this is part one of the two-part answer to freedom? He continues in Romans 8, and he tells us that something else now dwells within the born-again believer. Okay, I don't want to steal the thunder from next week because that's where we're going. Mitchell's going to come preach Romans 8, life in the spirit. But remember how I told you, we saw three different times in Romans 7. What did he say dwells within you? Sin dwells in me. Three times. We get into Romans 8, and guess who enters the picture and starts dwelling in you in Romans chapter 8? The Holy Spirit. And who wants to guess how many times in Romans 8 Paul says that the Spirit dwells in you? Three! You think it's a coincidence? He's covering over his tracks there. He's saying, yeah, my old nature was that I primarily identified myself as someone, sin dwells in me, sin dwells in me, sin. But now the Spirit of God dwells in me, and I am no longer fundamentally defined by my sin nature. I'm defined by the nature of Jesus living in me. See, if you study Romans 7 without studying Romans 8, you actually walk away with a false identity. It happened to me, guys, for like, 10 years, I walked around still fundamentally believing I'm a sinner by nature. I know Jesus bought me and paid for me and born again. I'm a sinner by nature. So all these things that I struggle with, well, it's just still my nature. Do you know that you actually live out of your identity? So if you think that's true about yourself, you're probably going to continue to still live like your sin nature is intact. This is a huge identity shift for us, church. We're no longer defined and controlled by the sin nature. I don't believe that's who we are. Can we still choose to sin? Absolutely. My flesh is still intact. It's a part of my dying body. And I'm called to put it to death daily through the Spirit. But is it my nature in Jesus to sin? Was it Adam and Eve's nature to sin in the garden? No, they weren't created with the sin nature, and yet they rebelled in the face of God. Guys, they walked through the garden with him. They walked with him without a sin nature, and they chose to sin right in his face. Before Jesus, it was my nature, meaning it was natural for me to sin, and sin consumed my life. If you go talk to my high school friends, Pride, vanity, sexual immorality, addiction, just it was my nature. I overflowed with it. But when Jesus came into my life, the scripture says, Titus 3, that I was washed, the washing and regeneration of renewal by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus made me born again, all of that stuff became like foreign invaders in my life. And my spirit could not rest. The Holy Spirit inside of me would not rest until that stuff was exodus from my life. Tyler said it great last week. The Holy Spirit doesn't go away. I can harden my heart towards God. I can quench the Holy Spirit. So it is very possible to be a born-again believer and be wrapped up in a bunch of sin and mess. But those people are usually the most miserable people on the planet. Why? Because they're living contrary to their nature. You can't enjoy the temporary passing pleasures of sin when the holiness of God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. 
And so you either have to ignore him and harden your heart towards him and quench him, and you just live like an outcast and a runaway orphan all the time, and it's miserable. It's miserable. Why does this matter? I want you to stand this morning as we land this. Are you still with me, guys? We made it? Okay. Why does this matter? This matters so much, church, because we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, which means that what we think about ourselves is vital to who we become and how we actually live, right? That's why it's so important for us to think rightly about who we now are in Christ, for us to think God's thoughts about us. I've heard way too many believers say something along the lines of like this. I am hopeless and, believers, I am hopeless and wretched, incapable of producing anything good unless Jesus lives in me and through me. Maybe you've said that before. So I'm like, does Jesus live in you and through you? Yes. Well, then stop saying that. You see what I'm saying? Guys, I just don't think that that's how God thinks about us. Do you think that God, you're a child of God. Do you think that God is looking at you this morning going, Jerry, you are hopeless and wretched. You are incapable, my son, of producing anything good today unless you yield to my Holy Spirit. Does that sound like a good father? No. We are children of God, born again. The old is gone. The new has come, recreated in the image and likeness of God, saints by calling. And on top of all of that, we are mobile dwelling places of the Spirit of God. God, this is amazing. Who we are in Christ is amazing. We are vessels, and it's important for us to understand what kind of vessels we are. Yes, we are earthly vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, jars of clay. We're carrying the surpassing power. It's from him. It's not from us. But what kind of vessels are we? 2 Timothy 2, he says this, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable and some for dishonorable. But if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That sounds like a good father saying you are an honorable vessel because I have actually cleansed you of all your dishonorable stuff through Jesus on the cross. So if you'll step in alignment with what I already say about you, you'll realize you're a pure vessel. You're an honorable vessel. Quit walking around, kicking yourself in the butt, talking about how broken and messed up and sinful you are all the time and get into alignment with who he already says you are in Jesus. Let's get some of our prayer team up here Guys, when we believe that the indwelling sin nature still controls our lives, do you know what it creates? It creates a victim mentality. It creates a victim mentality. Victims, by definition, they feel trapped. They feel hopeless. They feel powerless. They say stuff like, it's not me. It's the sin in me. I want to obey, but I don't have the power to obey. The gospel of power springs us free from that prison. 
we can still choose to sin in the face of our God. Don't hear me. I'm not preaching perfectionism up here. We can still choose, but we need to understand that as born-again believers, now it is our choice. And when we sin every single time, we are choosing to look in the face of God and we are choosing to sin against Him. Our sin nature is not moving us, controlling us. It's not my mom's fault. It's not my dad's fault. It's not my roommate's fault. It's not the person who abused me's fault. It's not anyone's fault. It is now my choice, which is really actually good news for us because that means I can choose freedom. So if you want to get free today, maybe it's an identity shift. You're like, man, I've been walking around thinking I'm a broken sinner my whole life. Nobody told me Jesus doesn't say that's who I am anymore. Come up here. Take the great exchange. You know, let's pray. If you want to get released from a victim mentality and you're still living trapped in something because you think it controls you, that's not the gospel of power. We want to pray with you today. If your fundamental identity is that of an honorable vessel set apart and useful to God, then the great question of your life becomes, God, what do you want me to carry today? What do you want me to carry? You say I'm an honorable vessel, God. What do you want me to carry today? How much more fun is that life than every day waking up and trying to convince God that you'll do better today or something, right? Man, Jesus, would you come and just break us free? We want to be free from the spirit of religion. We don't want to be married to the law. We want to be married to you. Just come forward. If you want to get prayer, just start coming forward for anything. It's all confidential. Jesus, break us through from any place of victim mentality or victimhood where we feel like sin still traps us and on us. That's not the gospel you died to bring, Jesus. We declare that we're no longer slaves. You have adopted, ransomed, redeemed us to walk out as children free. Come, Lord, we invite you. Work in our hearts.